Elite colleges in the United States have long been filled with the children of the very richest families. At Ivy League schools, one in six students has parents in the top 1%. Now there's a new study of elite college admissions data that suggests that being rich is its own qualification. We need a new system. We need a new society. We need to demand that which may have sounded impossible even a few weeks ago, but is not only realizable, but an imperative necessity. We're very excited to have Professor Richard Wolf join us again for our regular weekly segment where we talk about the biggest stories related to the economy, the state of the working class, and the crimes of big business. I'm your host, Brian Becker. The Socialist Program brings you content three days a week thanks to the support of our patrons at patreon.com forward slash the socialist program. We appreciate all of your support and encourage you, if you're not yet, to become a patron today if you enjoy listening or relying on this show or both. Richard Wolf is the co-founder of the organization Democracy at Work. He's the author of many books, the latest being The Sickness is the System, When Capitalism Fails to Save Us from Pandemics or Itself. You can check out all of his work at rdwolf.com. That's rdwolff.com. Professor Wolf, welcome back. Thank you, Brian. Very glad to be here. You know, Professor Wolf, I'm sometimes I kind of mutter to myself, like, why do we need a study about that? Everybody knows that. And this is true about so many of the studies that are commissioned, pay for, you know, big time researchers spend a lot of time collecting the data. Everybody kind of knows that the ultra rich have their own kind of affirmative action program, that that's the way things work. The big struggles in Congress are never about the fact that the rich, the ultra-rich, the children of the ultra-rich, who are rich not because of something they did, but because of the family to which they were born, that they have these special privileges and advantages. That's never a controversy in Congress. It's only if poor kids, kids from Black or Latino communities, women who have been deprived, discriminated against, have some additional boost, some affirmative action boost, that becomes a big controversy, but this, the idea that the ultra-rich have their own affirmative action program, not a controversy. Anyway, you've seen this study. It's a big article in the New York Times. And while, yes, we do know this to be true without having seen the study, parts of the study are pretty revealing. Let's talk about it. Okay. And let me begin by telling you and your audience a story. Both of my parents were immigrants here to the United States. My father was born in France and my mother in Germany and had not only the questionable status of refugees arriving here, immigrants, but they also had no ability to bring any wealth or income with them. They didn't come from wealthy people in the first place. But what little they had, they had to leave behind with their relatives. So I grew up in a household with no money. And it's a long story, but I ended up one of the young people 
brought, in my case, to Harvard University, where I did my undergraduate work. I had to get apply for a fellowship, which I got, because it didn't cover most of the cost of Harvard in those days. I had to also request a loan, which I got, and then had to pay off for many years. And finally, I requested and got a job. I sold programs at Harvard football games and things like that. I was grateful to get in to a college. I was grateful to get into that particular college. And I very quickly noticed among my dorm mates in the four years that I was there, that there were indeed lots of people who seemed to be extraordinarily wealthy and a smaller group of us who were clearly not. You know, it's something you learn very quickly in the close quarters of a dormitory. You notice very quickly who's got an awful lot of money and who doesn't. And here's what I discovered. Among the many young men, because in those days men and women were kept quite rigidly apart when I was a student, many of the young men in my dormitories and in the others I got to know came from very rich families, and what may surprise you, they were not interested at all in being there. They really wished they weren't there. Every chance they got, they left the Harvard campus in Cambridge and went off to Cape Cod or Europe or the Caribbean or wherever it is their wealth enabled them to go. That was very clear who was out of the place at vacation time when those of us who didn't have any money stayed there and the rest left. I discovered that they weren't these rich kids. They weren't committed to the studies. They didn't care much about them. They didn't devote themselves to them. And they didn't want to be there. And many of them complained about it to me. I always thought I was gifted by being able to be there, but they weren't. And so I would ask them, well, why are you here? And their answer was always the same. My family insists on it. My father is, and then they would mention the corporation the father was the CEO at, and he wanted his son to be following in his footsteps in that or a similar corporation. Or if their father was a lawyer or a judge, he wanted the student to be a lawyer or a judge, all of that. And so it was important for the family that their sons go to Harvard as much as possible. And so the sons went because what else were they going to do? But they had no appreciation, no liking, no barely tolerated being there, got drunk an awful lot, caroused around every chance they got. They were putting in four years of undergraduate time, graduating with a Harvard degree, which would then give them quick and easy entree into a good job in the sense of whatever their parents thought was a good job. I was completely different. I thought my job was to take advantage of every educational service that Harvard provided, soak it all up in order to climb out of the poor environment out of which I had come. It's a completely different mentality. Why am I telling you this? 
because Harvard was full of students who didn't want to be there at the same time that it had refused to admit huge numbers of students who would have done anything to be there. In other words, if Harvard's goal, which it kept telling us, was to educate, it was clearly a goal that clashed with their admissions policy because they brought in the children of the rich who had no interest in, no commitment to, no discipline for studying anything. They were waiting to get out. George Bush and the Bush family, wonderful examples of exactly that. These are young men who did absolutely nothing as students. They just drank and enjoyed four years of no work to do, a kind of perpetual country club living, which is how they experienced it. But it, it shows up that the elite educational institutions are mostly about elite and only very secondarily about education. The report that you've cited that the New York Times and others are talking about very carefully did its research. It compared students who came from equivalent high schools, who had similar grades, who had similar scores on the scholastic aptitude tests that most students still have to take to get into college. So these were students who were similarly qualified, but those who came from rich households were accepted two to three times the rate at which young men, and nowadays young women, of course, as well, get accepted if they come from poor. Later on, when I became a professor, most of my adult life, so I got to hobnob with other people at higher levels of the universities where I taught. Yale University will be the best example. I taught there for a while. I learned from my friends and colleagues that this was an explicit policy in these universities. It wasn't some accident. It wasn't a peculiarity of this or that official. It was the policy. And it was the policy for reasons which people in the days when I was there talked about openly. The university wanted to be, in the case of Harvard, the richest university in the world, which it was at that time and which it still is. And in order to keep up the wealth, they had to bring in rich kids because they were more likely to be richer still in their adult life after college and therefore better bets to give fat donations to the college. And that has worked very well for the Harvards and the Yales and the Princetons and so on that work that way. They are a business. They thought of themselves as a business. They were making money, profit, growth. And the way to do that was to cater to the people who were rich and sending their children there because they'd give money. And then a decade or so later, these students would themselves inherit the wealth of their family and also continue the tradition of donating to these institutions and sending their children in turn to them. 
The important point here is that nothing has changed. I went to school 40 to 50 years ago. We knew it then. There were discussions at Harvard and at Yale. There were claims that this is not a good thing, that serious people made. There were nods of the heads of administrators that, yes, indeed, it is a problem. And when the nodding of the heads and the wonderful statements were done with, absolutely nothing changed. So here we are, 40, 50 years later, another piece of research which confirms what we all already knew if we pay attention. Last point. We like to say in this country, and nowhere more than at the Harvards and Yales of this country, we like to say we live in a meritocracy. In other words, merit is what counts. If you have merit, so the argument goes, it will be recognized and you will be rewarded. The people who are rich and powerful are there because their merit got them there. Well, that was never true. This nonsense about merit always was what it is today. It's a way for the people who are at the top to stay there, to get their children to replace them, and to cover it all over by the make-believe that they're there because they're smarter than everybody else or work harder than everybody else. None of that is true. Never was. Meritocracy is a fakery designed to make people who aren't at the top believe it's their own fault. You don't have enough merit. Well, I can assure you, that the people who run this country now, who boast of their Harvard and Yale and Princeton degrees, were mostly the very young men, and now also the very young men and women, for whom college was a, a boring time to endure, not a passionate time to learn. The people who got there like I did by really struggling hard we were picked by people for God knows what reason. We were told it was because of our merit, but we very quickly learned that we were there for all kinds of reasons and that the people who picked us were precisely the products of a system that mocked the very idea of merit, never took it very seriously, I've always wondered why they picked me when there were loads of other people in the public school system I went through who were just as qualified as I was. It may have been that I spoke three languages because my parents were immigrants, I had to learn them, or things like that, but they had very little to do with a qualification for learning or a commitment to any of it. So. I'm glad this report is out. I'm glad it confronts us. But what it does is confront us about something that has been true here in the United States for a very long time. Richard, I want to read a little bit for the audience sake for the article. And you summarize some of it. But I, just for people who might be looking up the article, again, the headline is, if people want to find it in the New York Times, study of elite college admissions data suggests being very rich is its own qualification. 
here's some of the article. A large new study released Monday shows that it has not been because these children had more impressive grades on average or took harder classes. These are the one in six students whose parents are in the top 1% of income. They tended to have higher SAT scores and finely honed resumes and applied at a higher rate, but they were overrepresented even after accounting for those things. For applicants with the same SAT or ACT score, children from families in the top 1% were 34% more likely to be admitted than the average applicant. And those from the top 0.1%, one-tenth of 1%, were more than twice as likely to get in. The study by Opportunity Insights, a group of economists based at Harvard who study inequality, quantifies for the first time the extent to which being very rich is its own qualification in selective college admissions. The analysis is based on federal records of college attendance and parental income taxes for nearly all college students from 1999 to 2015 and standardized test scores from 2001 to 2015. It focuses on the eight Ivy League universities as well as Stanford, Duke, MIT, and the University of Chicago. It adds an extraordinary new data set, the detailed anonymized internal admissions assessments of at least three of the 12 colleges covering half a million applicants. The new data shows that among students with the same test scores, the colleges gave preference to the children of alumni and to recruited athletes and gave children from private schools higher non-academic ratings. The result is the clearest picture yet of how America's elite colleges perpetuate the intergenerational transfer of wealth and opportunity. What I conclude, this is quote, what I conclude from this study is the Ivy League doesn't have low-income students because it doesn't want low-income students, said an economist at Harvard Graduate School of Education, one of the people who studied it. That's the other thing about this, Richard. You know, most of the really intelligent people in the country are working class people because most of the people in the country are working class people. So if we assume that the working class is just as smart as the rich or perhaps smarter because people, you know, if you think of intelligence not as something innate, but, you know, your struggle to survive, your struggle to make do, your struggle to overcome obstacles and odds, quote, makes you smarter I would think the working class is proportionally much smarter than the rich kids. But, you know, the working class isn't really represented in the elite universities, except for a very, very tiny fraction. And actually, the rich don't want to go to college with working class kids. That's another part of this. The whole idea of private property or private colleges, when you boil down what private property really means, private property really means the the right to exclude. If I own this, if it's my property, I have the right to exclude. I have the right to exclude you from my beach, my country club, or my college. And that's another element of this immense class bias, which, you know, if it was in Europe, Richard, where your parents were from, the idea of class stratification, 
pretty much taken for granted. If you were, you know, a worker, born a worker, you're probably going to be a worker. But in America, the idea of American exceptionalism is also the idea that anybody can become rich. This idea of upward mobility, that it's a, a fair playing field. It's just a matter of how hard you work, how smart you are, whether you're a risk taker, and of course, if you have some good luck. Go ahead. Yeah, I think it's it's what led me to stress at the beginning of this program that many of the people that are there don't want to be there. They would much rather have these four years off and then go into their parents' firm. But they're there because of some extraneous desire, which is the parents wanting to pass on their wealth, have their children have a good, quote unquote, job, it used to be for women, although now it's for women and men pretty much equally, that you want to go to that college because the assumption is you might very well find a, a marriage partner and that should be from a very select group of people, more or less like you. And so the rich want to go where the rich already are. You can see that in the housing patterns of this country and you can see it in the selection of colleges. But it's important. It has very little to do with education. And it means not only are the vast majority of capable people working class people, because the working class is such an overwhelming majority of our population, but here's what has to be understood as well. You are keeping very capable young men and women with an enormous hunger to learn and to develop themselves. You're keeping them out of prestigious institutions. And you're replacing them with the children of the rich who have a much more ambivalent, I'm being as polite as I can, a much more ambivalent attitude towards the educational activities. My doormates got much more excited about sports events than they ever did about anything going on in the classroom. And even if you believed, which I don't, but if you believed that this is true of young people across the board, you're still left with saying, well, maybe college is something that ought to be open to everybody, but that one of the qualifications is real serious indication of a commitment to make use of this education, to make use for the benefit of society as a whole, of the greater contributions to society you can make if you get an education, and which is as true of elementary and high school school as it is of the university. But we don't do it. We have allowed this institution, higher education so-called, to be corrupted. And there's no other way to say it by the capitalist system we live in, made to serve the rich, made as a place for the rich to pass on their wealth, pass on the jobs they monopolize at the top, pass on the prestige, pass on the access to political power, all of the things that happen. It's not an accident that most of the Supreme Court judges, most of the presidents we've had, leading politicians, are products of the same university from which the leading corporate executives, lawyers and doctors come. It, it's a system for preserving privilege. And it ought to be faced as that 
and we the rest of us ought to be smart enough to learn from studies like this one that to give credit to people because they have been to Harvard or Yale is really to misunderstand who these institutions serve, how they serve them, and how secondary anything having to do with education has been and continues to be. Richard, in China, everyone has to learn English, you know, in school. If you want to get into college, you have to have studied English. There are 400 million, 400 million English language learners in China. There are estimated to be 1 million English language teachers in China. By year 2025, the number of college STEM graduates, science, technology, math, in China will be about double what it is in the United States. And obviously, this great, great stress on education, where in the United States, I mean, the system is so rigged, education feels largely irrelevant to kids in, certainly in high school, they're not really applying themselves. There's not a high set of standards. The upper middle class, not just the ultra rich, but the upper middle class, they can get tutors in their junior year so they do better on SAT scores. You know, it's just a matter of kind of squeaking by, getting in one way or the other. Right. But, you know, when you think about the role of education, you could definitely see this in the, the way the Soviet Union developed. I mean, at the time of the Russian Revolution in 1917, most of the country was illiterate, almost all rural, almost all peasant, and almost all illiterate. And by 1970, it became, in spite of all the other difficulties, including World War II, et cetera, the second biggest economy in the world, a part of that was mass education, the stress, the emphasis on education. In the United States, the capitalist system actually doesn't, as a system, care that much at this point about education. It certainly isn't organized in a way that allows the United States to sort of compete at the educational level. And at the same time, each parent is sort of on their own. And if you don't have money for that tutor in the junior year, if your child is already feeling they're not making it, you know, there's sort of the stratification really becomes very, very intense. Anyway, I want you, because I know you've been studying and talking a lot about economic development and the relationship between the U.S. and China, for instance. Let's just talk in our last two or three minutes about the role of education in that larger process. Yes, I think you see it in China, you see it in India, you see it in a number of other countries, an enormous stress on education. And it should surprise no one, because if you look at the people at the bottom of the pyramid in this country, African-Americans, poor white people, and so on, in many families, it was understood that education, as much of it as you could get, was your ticket out, your ticket up the hierarchy. So if your mother and father were factory workers, you could get enough education, you could be a nurse or a teacher or something that required some sort of educational qualification and so forth. And now you see it on a national basis. The Chinese want to, like the Indians and others, want to become richer, 
more successful, higher standard of living countries. And education is a way for them to do it. I mean, let me give you one example. I'm friends with people who have been telling me over recent years that American corporations who used to give them money, it's called endowing a chair. A big company or a wealthy person gives a ton of money to a university which establishes a chair in the donor's name. And so if you're successful, you get a, an appointment as a professor who holds a chair. That's the language. And they were complaining because corporations aren't giving them the money to establish these chairs the way they once did. I looked into it and I had for them the explanation they were seeking. The corporations are still giving money for chairs. It's a way for a corporation to establish a special relationship with an institution so they can shape what that institution teaches, so they can then hire the people the university has taught as their future employees. It's very self-serving. But the answer to their question was they're establishing chairs where they expect to be able to hire and that's at Indian and Chinese universities. It's a little known fact, but that's where American corporations are already planning to get their high-tech employees, engineers, doctors, scientists, researchers, they're going to be coming from where they are being trained. And that is less and less in the United States and more and more in these up-and-coming countries. The role was reversed. Once upon a time, the United States was the place where it was done relative to Europe. We're just seeing the center of capitalist dynamism leaving its old places, Western Europe, North America, and Japan, and migrating to where the profits are higher. That's where capitalism always went. We used to have it come here for that purpose. Now it's leaving here for the same purpose, going to China, India, and so on, where the conditions for profitable production are simply greater, and not just in the low wages of mass workers, but in the education and the salaries the highly educated people will demand. And that hasn't changed and continues to be the way of the future, no matter how American politicians or the people that believe them imagine or fantasize that somehow this is not going to continue. They've been thinking that for 40 years. It's been continuing without interruption for all those 40 years. Richard Wolff is the co-founder of the organization Democracy at Work. He's the author of many books, the latest being The Sickness is the System, When Capitalism Fails to Save Us from Pandemics or Itself. Be sure to check out all of his work at rdwolff.com. That's R-D-W-O-L-F-F.com. You're listening to The Socialist Program. Tomorrow we'll be back. We're going to talk about the U.S. nuclear program and the new movie Oppenheimer. You've been listening to The Socialist Program with Brian Becker, where we bring you news and views about the world for those who want to change it. If you enjoyed the show, subscribe on your favorite podcast app and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And watch video episodes of our in-depth show, The Real Story, every Wednesday at 7 p.m. Eastern on YouTube with our partner, Breakthrough News. 
We can only continue our work bringing you high-quality news, analysis, and history with the support of our listeners. Connect with us and become a patron at patreon.com slash the socialist program and receive an invitation to participate in an exclusive monthly seminar with Brian Becker. 